Hey. Hello. Yellow. Hello. Good, how are you? Hello. Hello. Hey. <clears throat> hey, man, what's going on? Go ahead, how are Yo, you doing? Are you already recording? Levels are okay? I think we can all agree the summer got off to a rough start. Before the season officially began, I found myself sitting high up at the top of Riverdale Park, taking in the whole city to the west. Um, hmm. Uh, definitely my favorite thing over the course of the pandemic, outdoors-wise, has been uh, to cycle down... No, okay, I'm going to start over. Sorry. Yeah, um, <laughs> just a second. I'm just getting the, uh, the proper name for it. Um, Technically, it was the early days of the pandemic, and I wasn't supposed to be sitting there, but I think the science has vindicated me on this point. I got really tired of kind of the same neighborhoods that I was in, and I also got tired of, like, not having enough greenery around. Well, I mean, so, for me, I've been setting um, uh, the hammock up in uh, Sororan Park a lot. Uh, that's been really, really good. But I think that the, uh, the waterfront trail might actually be kind of the winner. Um, just I needed a spot away from editorial Zoom conferences, my stuffy apartment, my own damn thoughts. Dover Court Park has been like just such a lovely spot to hang out at, you know, both by myself and with uh, friends. And I teach high school, and the summer for me normally is about getting away from people as much as possible. And because we live in the West End, um, I've always really enjoyed going to High Park. Kids flying kites and chasing dogs around, and it just reminds you that, you know, people are still able to be human throughout all of this. And trails in it. And I like how much sprawling nature there is going on. It feels like you're not even in the city anymore. As the season unfolded, I found a few of these spots. Places to make the most of our brief summer season and shake off the dread and the grief we've all been processing. Yeah, I uh, I don't want to go outside. <laughs> and like, I, I recently just started trying to go for walks. For me, one thing that's uh, made a big difference is the active TO road closures on the weekends, especially Lakeshore West. It's been really awesome to just cycle um, in areas that are, are normally cars only. I love just breezing uh, down the hill, surrounded by other cyclists, wind in your face. It really gives the feeling of not being cooped up so much inside. Everyone deals in their own way, and we've all had to get creative. Long hikes, secret beaches. So, um... After doing like a little bit of exploring, I ended up um, in the Cedarville uh, Ravine that's between uh, Eglinton and um, St. Clair. So there's a spot that really kind of kept me going throughout the summer was uh, being able to go back to Hamlin Point. Um, I would say the beaches and the lake in general. Uh, especially as a queer person, um, we don't really have any places we can gather together as queer people. So I've been to the beaches a number of times. I've been to the island and Honeyside Beach. And um, even if I don't go for a swim, just being able to sit by the water, um, you know, socially distance uh, with friends by the water. Uh, kind of being a, a light in the darkness, being able to go back there and see my people. For me and my friends, we crawled out of our quarantines and hung out in a parking lot by the train yard. It was quiet, secluded, and just what we needed to finally catch up in person after a cold, brutal spring. It's funny, I was joking with friends on Twitter, um, you know, can we all pick another sport for winter um, now, you know, whether it be snowshoeing or skiing or whatever, because um, I think that's going to be the, the big thing is to not uh, be stuck inside my, my small apartment all winter around. So, before the summer ends, what's your spot? 
That's that would probably be my answer. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye. All right. Talk to you later. Love you. Yeah. Bye. Back in the closet with the air conditioner turned off because this is a real podcast and I'm a professional. I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we speak to the authors of a new cross-country parkland survey, Adri Stark and Jake Topin Garrett, about the state of our green spaces and their role in the pandemic. And we speak to Johnny Dovercourt, author of a new book, Any Given Night of the Week, all about the history of Toronto's music scene. But first... We spoke to Lanrick Bennett Jr. a year ago about the 880 City's pop-up bike lanes around Danforth and Woodbine Avenue in Toronto. Lanrick had been pushing for more cycling infrastructure in the East End for years and was excited to see something happen, even if it was temporary. A lot can change in a year. Lanrick is now the managing director for 880 Cities and, as a result of the active TO pandemic response, the city has installed bike lanes all along the Danforth an expanded space for local businesses to provide patio service. I talked to Landrick about these developments and how to put pressure on to keep them permanent. And just as a disclosure, 880 Cities partners with the City of Toronto on Active TO's Quiet Streets program. Stand by. You know, it occurred to me that the last time we spoke... Uh, we were talking about a, a pilot bike lane project on the Danforth, something that was kind of a glimmer of something you'd been calling for for years. And now we have some really good-looking lanes on the Danforth, and I know you've been using them, so I, I wonder if you could speak to that. Is it not incredible? I mean, we're, we, we've gone literally across the viaduct. You hit Broadview, and you keep on going until Dawes Road. We're almost touching Scarborough. Yeah, it is, uh, it's mind-blowing. And, and really, if you haven't been out to the Danforth in a while, it shocks the system that you have such a, yeah, it's just mind-blowing that you can see cyclists now going uh, east to west. You've got pedestrians on the sidewalk. You've got cars in the middle. Cafe TO is running brilliantly. It feels kind of like a complete street, like like it just feels like the city has done right by 10 plus years, I'm sure, of advocacy on the west side of us, on the east side of us, within the, the east end. We have been pushing for this for uh, such a long time to, to see it uh, up and running and thriving. And I mean, it's, it's only been what, maybe... 10 weeks-ish of of this being, you know, really just a viable option of everything beyond just commuting. I mean, like, there are parents like myself with their kids out early in the morning. There's There are, you know, uh, uh, seniors out in packs right now riding. People are out, and, and it really does feel like, it feels like the city's kind of grown up, right? I mean, you you mentioned like the ten year fight. Uh, from your perspective, from your advocacy, what was that push like? It was hard. It was hard because the most quote unquote bike lane most had seen out in the East End was uh, the Woodbine 
bike lanes. And there was a lot of angst on the construction of it and just the sheer thought of taking away a lane Mm -hmm. as opposed to the mindset of liberating uh, your street and allowing it to safely uh, bring more people there. That type of narrative was never really It was hard to put forth on the Danforth end. Definitely there was some pushback by the loudest voices and and they seem to uh, get the most weight when it comes to when it comes to that type of advocacy. But, you know, kudos to to those that were were sticking it out from from the get go. And and I think it was making it clear that this wasn't some sort of bike lobby. This wasn't a cyclist lobby. This was creating space that that really allows for safety. And that should be the number one reasoning why we would want to separate a slew of cyclists from vehicles that are going over, over 15 kilometers an hour. And, and when you say safety, I mean, it's not just safety for battle-hardened riders. Uh, you've got your kids out there, uh, which was something that uh, was a priority for you last time we spoke. And it still is a priority now. We are we're, we're weeks away from getting back to school, and the number of of students that are possibly not going to be on a school bus, and the way things are going right now with public transit, you're either going to walk, you're going to drive, or you're going to ride. And to effectively allow these students to be able to get to and fro from school. The Danforth bike lanes have have opened up a new opportunity, not just for students, but for teachers and for the parents of those students to really be able to actively get themselves out and feel confident enough that they can get from uh, point A to B in a much safer fashion. It is it's a game changer. It really is. And and beyond the bike lanes, I mean, you mentioned Cafe To uh, on the Danforth. Uh, what we're seeing is this kind of complete street study. So uh, it's a mix of bike lanes and interventions to expand uh, patios for for businesses so they can survive through this. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it kind of looks like it looks completely different. And I, I just wonder, what does that mean for the whole neighborhood? The you know the ability to use active transportation to get to a business that can now survive because they've got all this space that might have otherwise been kind of uh, taken over by cars and parking and all that. There was also that narrative that that cars were were the essential piece to uh, allow for our businesses to survive, and it's not cars; it's people. And if if there are ways to get more people there, again in that in that safe environment way, it makes it that much more of a value add to our BIAs. And you walk through the Danforth now on Thursday evening and you are, if your eyes are just, you know, just wide open on the fact that there are so many people out and they're using so many different ways of getting to the Danforth. And it's, this isn't a war on cars. This is, again, you're using your street in a more uh, equitable way to allow for businesses to be able to take over a portion of that street. 
allowing bikes to be able to to get onto that street, opening up your pedestrian uh, sidewalk so that people can go to and fro. And there are still cars. <laughs> there are still cars on the Danforth. They have not been taken away. Right. Uh, but they also get uh, some needed parking. Uh, and especially for people that definitely need to drive, this is not a deterrent to to come down to the Danforth. I mean, they've Brad Bradford has coined the the term destination Danforth. It is a destination now, and and it feels particularly uh, uh, fun to be able to to get to the Danforth now. Absolutely, and uh, you know this had pretty much universal uh, support at. Uh at city council, which was surprising to me, frankly, as a, as a long time <laughs> observer. But, uh, you know, there was chatter, uh, amongst people, uh, when, when this was being proposed, you know, some people suggested, well, this is just a Trojan horse. Cause once this is there, uh, it's going to stay. I'm not always that optimistic, but it seems like this has been such a wild success that it's hard to imagine just ripping it all up and going back to the status quo. Uh, what do you think? Should we learn these lessons? So I, I, I am one of those that uh, when I bring up Destination Danforth, when I bring up the bike lanes on Danforth Avenue right now, we are still under that one-year pilot period. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I make sure that people understand that we've seen what happened on Jarvis. We know that if council decides to vote another way, all of this could be taken off. So advocates are still advocating for why this is this is where we should be pushing our future towards. This is not done, and and as beautiful as it looks, and as equitable as I may feel that it might be, and as user friendly as it's you know evolving into, yeah, this could be this could be taken apart in three hundred and sixty some odd days. So the fight's not over for those that feel that this concept of complete streets is where this city needs to go. We still need to be pushing. We still need to be tinkering and and finding that balance that that can allow for um, a larger majority of people to not just think this is a cool thing to have, but that this is kind of the future of where the city needs to go. And and even before those, uh, you know, that one year term, uh, wraps up, uh, you know, season's going to change. <laughs> so uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts about like keep maintaining this vibrancy of this complete street and these, these interventions, uh, throughout the kind of colder months. So I, I am a winter rider and, uh, if you've ever seen three one ones, uh, Twitter feed, uh, in the winter, just trying to get across the viaduct, you know that there are many, many other cyclists that ride throughout the winter. Mm-hmm. The infrastructure is there, and as long as the city is prepared to maintain it the same way they do the DVP or the Gardner Expressway or Jones Avenue, which is right outside my door, if we get that maintenance, you will see people use this 365 days a year. Regardless if it's raining outside or snow, if you can walk, you can ride, and that will be a a big plus for commuters in general. As for the businesses, we've seen winter wonderlands prop up in the distillery district and, you know, in other areas across the city. We can we can have fun in the winter seasons. And it's it's not too much of a stretch to see, you know, a, a innovative way for 
our uh, four BIAs that are that are uh, linked through Destination Danforth to really uh, make this a a fun and exciting winter to still come on out and uh, and enjoy this wonderful street. And are there any other lessons that you hope we learn from this pandemic or uh, advice to kind of keep this momentum building? I think that there is, and this is not not anything against staff that have been able to, again, put 10 years worth of advocacy and planning and whatnot to, to throw this in in uh, 10 weeks. But I think a lot of constituents are kind of scratching their heads going, wow, you guys, you guys did all of this in such a short amount of time. Can you do more? Can you do other things? And, and I wonder, I wonder if, if our politicians are kind of biting their nails going, oh my gosh, they've, they've seen us actually say yes to something. And then it actually, it actually happened. <laughs> and, and this isn't four years down the line. This is like they voted and, you know, two and a half months later, we're, we're ready to actually open this up. So I think for constituents right now, they have seen what can happen when good planning gets put forth and good policy is, is brought to the city. I'm going to be more interested in seeing how our politicians are able to uh, put a stop to uh, this type of progress because we have seen the fact that they can do stuff and they can do it quickly <laughs> and they can do it right. Now, also last year, we did a lot about parks across Canada and Park People's Cross-Country Survey, the first of its kind. Now, we have the newest version of that survey, and I spoke with its authors, Park People Project Manager Adri Stark and Policy Planning Manager Jake Tobin Garrett, about the ongoing operating pressures parks face and the need for greater inclusion and accessibility. Also, what we've learned about parks in the COVID-19 pandemic. Jake, we spoke last year uh, for the inaugural uh, Canadian City Park Support. And uh, I think you said at the time that the idea was to do this year after year so that eventually you get to see some kind of longitudinal insights. That's right. Yeah. So this is the second year of the report. And because of the nature of kind of park development, you know, not happening year to year that much, it'll take probably three to five years before we see trends emerge around kind of amount of parklands in cities and things like that. But uh, what we've certainly started to see with the second report is some consistency around the main challenges that are facing Canadian cities, namely issues of insufficient operating budgets, cities dealing with aging infrastructure, and also um, having a difficult time kind of keeping pace with uh, the speed of growth uh, in cities in terms of finding and creating new parkland. And uh, the, this study, uh, you had 27 cities reporting across Canada, and I think that's the same number as last year. It's actually an increase of four from last year. So we started off with 23 cities and uh, moved up to uh, to 27 cities this year and hope to increase that, obviously, for next year. And did you find this time around people are uh, excited to participate? They kind of see what you're going for? Yeah, definitely. You know, we had um, some cities actually reach out to us over the last year wanting to be included in the report. And we also had residents reach out to us who, you know, didn't see their city last year in the report. And helped us kind of lobby uh, to get those cities in the report. So if people are listening and they, they don't see their city reflected this year, you know, please just, just shoot us an email because it's really helpful to have residents lobby with us. 
And there's a number of key takeaways this year, and I wanted to kind of address them one by one, uh, starting with biodiversity. Uh, the report said only 19% of the respondents had a, a biodiversity strategy. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, talking about common challenges that so we found two thirds of, of the cities that we surveyed uh, listed protecting biodiversity as a top challenge, but only one in five actually had these citywide biodiversity strategies in place. Uh, and those those strategies are really important because they provide kind of a long term um, kind of holistic vision for how to protect and enhance biodiversity in natural areas in cities at a moment in time when they're increasingly under threat from urbanization processes and city development, um, and also uh, the ravages that we're seeing from climate change and extreme weather. And beyond the uh, environmental benefits of biodiversity, uh, the report also mentions that there is a kind of mental health component to it. Absolutely. Yeah, that was one of the most exciting things, I think, about doing this research this year was really diving into some of the academic literature um, from the last 10 years or so that's really started to draw a connection between areas that are rich in biodiversity and human well-being and finding that people actually report a higher kind of sense of well-being in areas that they perceive to be um, higher in biodiversity. And so, you know, we've known for a long time that nature um, and uh, mental health have a, have a connection, but a lot of those sort of uh, longer ago uh, research um, in the 1980s and kind of the 1990s uh, looked at green space just, you know, as green space as green space. They didn't really differentiate between a woodlot or a naturalized meadow or a park with a tree. And some of this newer research is kind of diving a little bit deeper into these different types of green space and finding that the areas that are richer in biodiversity and are more naturalized actually uh, help people, you know, feel sort of happier when they're there. And in terms of a, a biodiversity strategy, there were a number of cool examples uh, taken from various cities across Canada that sometimes involved designating a percentage of parks for uh, kind of biodiverse areas. There was the adaptation of infrastructure and uh, uh, I found it especially interesting in Montreal, there was this concept of uh, embracing decay. So, uh, for example, if letting a tree uh, decay where it where it fell, uh, if it was safe to do so, and uh, letting the sort of microbiome become part of the park. Yeah, I mean, that was it was really interesting to do this because there was so many really exciting examples across Canada of what cities are doing kind of at, um, locally. I think, you know, what you just pointed to when you just sort of ran down that list um, also kind of like underpins the importance of having these more holistic biodiversity strategies in place because um, biodiversity is about, as we highlight in the report, um, small urban biodiversity projects in local neighborhoods, you know, providing a place for people to connect with nature and also a place for, you know, wildlife to have, you know, habitat or sort of stepping stone habitat up to, you know, larger um, green spaces that provide larger habitats or um, kind of linear green spaces like river valleys or even renaturalizing hydro corridors that can act as these biodiversity corridors and, and wildlife corridors between different, you know, natural areas. And so really, you know, what you're seeing is um, the importance of kind of nesting these different scales together in order to really protect biodiversity fulsomely. And, and the next uh, major takeaway in this report, uh, and I think it was the same last year, but it continues to be an issue that a lot of cities face is just addressing the, the increasing growth in cities and, uh, you know, uh, Parkland as a percentage of uh, the space of, of in urban areas, and as, as more people flock to urban areas, are you seeing the needle move at all? Uh, I think I, I saw that sixty three percent of cities uh, responded that they have a master park strategy to address growth. Yeah, but, uh, how, how are things changing? 
So, you know, really what we looked at this year was um, to kind of drill down a little bit into the different kind of on the ground strategies that cities are using to um, increase parks in dense urban areas. Last year in the report, we really highlighted the importance of kind of these new park system master plans looking at connectivity over the whole system. So how does a system of laneways and streets and schoolyards and parks and green spaces kind of work together in these neighborhoods at kind of a a high level uh, view? And so this year we kind of drilled down into um, some of the strategies that cities were taking in these dense urban areas to increase park space. So, um, you know, creating parks on top of malls, creating parks underneath highways, creating parks in, in rail corridors on top of stormwater infrastructure. Um, it's really about layering parks on top of other infrastructure and also kind of about stringing parks along kind of linear infrastructure like hydro corridors and rail corridors, really trying to squeeze parks into kind of every crevice that you have in a city. And so those lead to kind of really exciting and kind of jaw-dropping parks in uh, some cases. But uh, we also found from speaking with planners and city staff in different places that these parks are also much more complex um, to build. They're much more complex to design, and they're also much more complex to maintain. And complexity also equals expensive. So what we're seeing is um, kind of the low-hanging fruit um, in a lot of cities is gone in terms of just kind of finding a piece of land to turn into a park. And uh, that cities, you know, are needing to use these creative strategies, but they're also, you know, needing to spend a lot more money kind of building and also maintaining these parks. And so that is a concern, you know, when you think about the fact that for the last two years, we've heard from cities that insufficient operating budgets is a large challenge. So you're getting these kind of twin constraints put on cities. Right. Like, how, how can you expand park space when you can't afford to maintain the space that you already have, even though it's insufficient space? Yeah, so 57% of the cities that we heard from through that survey said that COVID is likely to have a negative impact on park budgets within the next year. And half of cities indicated that they've actually already had to make cuts to staffing levels for park operations and maintenance. So it just goes to show that these issues are are sort of even more pressing with the pandemic. All right. I also wanted to ask you, Adria, about the inclusion piece, which is exacerbated by by covid First, I wanted to ask you about the the issue of um, displacing people experiencing homelessness in in our parks. I think in a lot of major cities uh, during the pandemic, and even in sometimes before, we've seen people who have really no other option camping out in parks. And uh, especially now, when a lot of the criticism about the shelter system is that there there are no safe places to socially distance in a, in a pandemic in these shelter systems. Yeah, as you mentioned, during COVID, we've seen a rise in encampments across the country. And experts are telling us that this is likely to sort of continue given the economic impacts of COVID. So this is definitely going to be a major challenge for parks across Canada moving forward. And through our COVID survey, which sort of reaffirmed findings from the Canadian City Parks report, we found that actually only 16% of cities have temporarily paused clearing encampments during the pandemic, even though public health authorities, including the Centers for Disease Control in both British Columbia and the states, have recommended that cities should allow people to remain in place for safety reasons. So cities are really challenged in responding to the issue of homelessness in an inclusive way when it comes to parks. So in the report, we sort of look at Again, as you mentioned, this displacement-oriented approach, whether that's defensive design, so, you know, benches that have a third armrest that don't allow people to to stay in place, or parks that just totally lack washrooms or seating, so it's just not a comfortable place to hang out for long periods of time, or whether it's more direct displacement through encampment clearances. 
These are sort of the standard approaches that cities are using across Canada. And we really highlight the need to look at alternatives because we know that dispersing people from parks comes with health and safety risks for people. It severs connections to support networks, whether that's other folks that they know in the neighborhood or actual service providers who are helping them work towards housing and other supports that they need. And especially moving forward from COVID, we see this huge opportunity to just do a little bit of a reset and rethink some of these standard approaches. So through our COVID survey, we heard that half of Canadians said that a lack of washrooms in parks has been a key concern of theirs during the pandemic. So making sure that we have these basic amenities like washrooms and and water in parks are things that will make parks more comfortable for everyone, but are especially critical for people experiencing homelessness. I think I just wanted to like add the, the one of the other statistics from that COVID-19 survey that I think is really kind of positive is that 41% of Canadians said that they uh, support kind of more services in parks for people who are experiencing homelessness as part of the COVID-19 recovery. So I think there's a there's an understanding and kind of a level of compassion and empathy um, from Canadians right now about people who are, you know, experiencing homelessness and, and using parks as places of shelter. In my neighborhood of Moss Park, there was a large tent encampment, and then those people were removed. You know, we've been told they've been removed to housing throughout the city. But as you say, this neighborhood has a lot of the support systems that people need, and that's why they're here, where the, the areas that they've been moved to might not necessarily. But now when I walk by that park, it's all fenced off. So no one can use the park for any real reason. It's it's surrounded by fences. So ha- having done this study what does that tell you? What What is the story there? I think when you, you see cities put up fencing to keep people out of parks um, in the hopes that they won't set up tents there, it goes back to that issue of defensive design mm-hmm. and making parks hostile for certain park users and then also more hostile for pretty much everyone. You know, and when you fence off a park completely so that nobody can get in, that has very obvious you know, ramifications for every single park user. And so as you know, we highlight in the report, these are not solutions to people experiencing homelessness in parks. Um, they make parks inhospitable um, and hostile to, to everyone. And it's against the entire ethos of you know, having public space open and accessible to all. I guess one other thing I could say about the specific example of fencing off parks is that a lot of times that's done you know, supposedly for environmental remediation purposes, if there's been tents sort of compacting the grass over a period of time. Mm-hmm. But I think that when when sort of thinking about the environmental impacts of people experiencing homelessness in parks, it's just really important to keep everything in perspective because ultimately a person experiencing homelessness is living a very low impact lifestyle compared to many housed people. But often the blame sort of gets put on them for these minor damages to park spaces. Um, I guess bigger picture, what I want to highlight is that there's just so many alternatives. Like, I think that homelessness feels like a daunting issue for city staff, but we can look at these really sort of inspiring, positive ways that folks are dealing with this issue in cities like Montreal, for example. So in Montreal's Cabot Square, which is a park that's sort of, um, it's a gathering place for people experiencing homelessness, as well as for the Indigenous community. So the Native Women's Shelter there has actually hired a full-time park-based social worker who just works directly out of the park and provides a deeper level of support to people. And parks ultimately can't address sort of underlying housing solutions. But what parks can do is they can be places where people can become more informed and educated and connect with their unhoused neighbors and challenge some of the stigma around homelessness. 
So they've also introduced this amazing park programming in Cabot Square, which I don't think is running during COVID. But for the past few years, they've had sort of a weekly Indigenous Fridays event where they do arts and cultural programming to help sort of bring together housed and unhoused park users in that community and just create a sense of shared understanding and respect. So I think that really highlights some positive options that cities could be taking in two senses. Like it highlights the opportunity to bring not just basic amenities like washrooms and and water to parks, but also basic services. And then as well as that, it highlights the opportunity to sort of bring communities together and work through some of these issues and some of these misperceptions and just try and create a more sort of respectful social culture in the neighborhood. And now I, I want to speak specifically to the sort of June post-COVID survey. I, I think you found that almost 100% of cities shut down all or parts of their parks in response to COVID, at, at least initially. I think a lot of people found that uh, getting outside was uh, one of the few reprieves from uh, the oppressiveness of sheltering in place and this idea of quarantine and social distancing. Then as the as the weather got warmer, it was an opportunity to reconnect with people at a distance. But uh, I think, and I hope, and I think your survey reflects that it really drove home to people how important these spaces are, where people can congregate safely in, in the open, fresh air. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Dave, you can go ahead. <laughs> um, well... I was just going to say, yes, absolutely. I think we've seen a growing appreciation for parks and green spaces, you know, during during the pandemic. You know, we found like 70% of Canadians said that their appreciation for parks had increased during COVID-19. And we've seen that same kind of increased awareness from municipal leadership as well. So uh, in our survey, we found um, 94% of cities said that they'd seen increased awareness amongst municipal leadership about the value of parks to public health during COVID-19. Um, so I think we're in, you know, a really kind of positive place in a way uh, where people have recognized that parks are not, you know, simply places of leisure, which of course they are, um, but they're also and can play, you know, critical roles and um, sort of public health and social infrastructure, especially during these sort of emergency um, moments. And, and are, are you both confident uh, or at least hopeful that uh, some of the lessons that we've learned from COVID in terms of the importance of parks and the need to uh, address the housing crisis. Do you think these are going to carry forward? I do. Like, I, I think we've actually even seen that happening already. You know, in Ontario, there was the provincial government had kind of changed the rules around parkland dedication for Ontario cities, removing um, part of the tools that cities had to acquire parkland as part of development processes, which cities protested, obviously, because that really hinders their ability to keep pace with growth, which, as we've seen, is, is a real you know, issue with cities, you know, not just in Ontario, but across Canada. But, you know, we saw, I believe it was the minister who reviewed that and changed that uh, rule, giving back one of the tools to cities for acquiring parkland through the development process, specifically referencing the fact that we've seen the importance of parks during, you know, COVID-19 and the importance of having, you know, large parks. So I do think that people have become, you know, much more aware of the real tangible benefits that we derive from having good quality parks and cities. And I, I do think that that will carry through. Yeah, for sure. And just adding on to that, to see that over 80% of Canadians said that parks have become more important to their mental health during the pandemic, it just really highlights the vital role that parks are playing to public health right now. So when thinking about you know the pandemic as a public health issue, I'm hopeful that cities will see this as an opportunity to make sure that parks are central to their COVID recovery plans. 
Okay. Well, Adri, Jake, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me. Thanks for the work. And uh, I look forward to the next one. Thank you very much, Glenn. Thank you. Finally, the musical history of Toronto might be the city's best-kept secret. We've never had the cachet of a New York, Nashville, or even Seattle. But generations of musicians have made an indelible mark on a variety of genres, and it started right here in the clubs and watering holes of Hogtown. Johnny Dovercourt is a journalist, musician, and co-founder and artistic director of the Wavelength Concert Series. His latest book, Any Night of the Week, a DIY history of Toronto music 1957-2001, to traces that unheralded history from early rock and roll on Yonge Street to the strange, turbulent, and ongoing saga of the El Macombo of indie music's heyday. So what's interesting is you see all these kind of moments where things look like they're about to explode in Toronto music history. You had Yorkville in the 60s, which was in the middle of the hippie movement, Toronto had one of the biggest like psychedelic scenes in, in the continent. And then 10 years later, the first wave of punk scene, Toronto again had the third biggest scene probably in the world after London and New York. Right. And in the new wave moment, we produced bands like Martin and the Muffins, who looked like they were going to become huge. They, they were on track to become the next B-52s or Blondie. They were on that level of sort of new wave crossover success. But they didn't break through in the states. They became they had a big hit in England and Australia, <laughs> but they they didn't break through in the states. And there's just you know that's the, the sometimes one of the heartbreaking things is looking back at the history of Toronto music. There's these moments where it looks like everything's going to come together, and then it's just, <laughs> there's a, str- a streak of bad luck, and things kind of fall apart for the bands um, that look like they were going to make it. And this sort of just kind of kept happening. But yet there's all this amazing music being made that's still kind of under the radar. There's all these great bands from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s that are now kind of forgotten. And I found that kind of frustrating. The people didn't know who Fifth Column was. Fifth Column is a band who uh, was an all-female, mostly female, post-punk band, experimental band that really were one of the creators and inventors of Riot Girl, and also one of the, the first bands to be considered queercore. A huge influence on bands like Keeney Kill, for example. And they were around for 15 years, and they were a mainstay on the Toronto club circuit. But local labels wouldn't come wouldn't come near them. Like Canadian major labels wouldn't touch them. They thought they just thought they were completely anti-commercial and and, and scary. And uh, Fifth Column are now you know now to those in the know are sort of cult cult heroes or heroines. But still, unfortunately, if you talk to the average broken social scene fan, probably that might have no idea who the column was. You end the book just as another big uh, movement is about to really um, come into its own. 2001 actually seemed like this really great ending point because it really kind of marked the beginnings of the internet. And so much has happened since then. And there's, there's this big Toronto indie music explosion. And then there was the Toronto hip hop explosion with Drake and The Weeknd. It's basically sort of as much has happened musically in the last 20 years is in the 40 odd years before it. So really like a, a second book would have to be written to cover the 21st century. But also there's this narrative through the book too, about the importance of venues, mm-hmm. of live music venues. And that really being the thing that really put Toronto on, not so much on the map, but really I think set it apart from other cities 
uh, maybe of the same size. It's it's always had a really strong network of live music venues and a real tradition of gig, of gig going. And even if some of these bands didn't have a record label to champion them and get their music out there, they always had clubs to play. They always had venues to play, especially on on Queen West, for example. I wanted to ask you about Queen West because, uh, as you say, like the the book documents a lot of booms and busts for various movements, but uh, Queen West kind of becomes a through line for the book, uh, starting with the sort of early punk movement and continuing on until present day. Although you know some of those venues are now threatened or closing, but uh, that kind of seemed to open up the city as this kind of main thoroughfare for live entertainment. Yeah, exactly. The scenes that preceded Queen West sort of came and went. You start with Young Street, this strip of licensed clubs that peaked in the late 50s or early 60s and continued on the 70s, but then started to fade away as Young Street became a little more commercial and a little more sleazy. In the 60s, you had Yorkville, which was this preserve of coffee houses uh, where you had folk singers and jazz groups originally, and then psychedelic rock came in. Um, and that area was sort of this artistic wonderland that was basically intentionally destroyed by the city and the, and the business leaders who wanted to turn it into a shopping district. Then Queen West was the kind of the, the, the venue neighborhood that, that really established this kind of this, this foothold for original music to be heard and to be supported. And, and these venues thrived. Recently, uh you know, in the last uh, maybe 10 years, we, we've been seeing the gentrification that ironically might have started with, uh, you know, bands and venues coming in. The neighborhoods that are famous for these venues are just getting so expensive that we are losing venues more than five a year. And, and then you add COVID to that, uh, where we, we really don't know what the future of live entertainment is going to be for the next little while. Do you have any insight onto what the pandemic is going to do to these venues and uh, and how do we move out of this as a as a quote unquote music city? Yeah, venues have been shut down for close to six months, and I think you know it's been absolutely devastating for some of these venues. And I think I think that our surveys that have gone out have indicated that something like ninety percent of the independent music venues or small venues in Canada are going to go out of business as a result of COVID. So the only I think silver lining is that you are actually finally seeing government step up and recognize that these spaces need support. Right. I think the recently uh, the city said uh, that they had about uh, 1.7 million uh, for 45 different venues in, in the city uh, for in property tax relief. The city was, uh, is, has announced the property tax relief, which I think is, is going to be huge for these 45 venues. But on top of that, um, a lot of these uh, uh, for-profit venues were actually deemed eligible for phase two of the emergency COVID funding. And that was huge because there's been, within the sort of arts ecology of Canada, there's been a divide between the for-profit world and the Mm not-for-profit. Traditionally, arts funding has been earmarked for -for not-for-profit organizations. That's one of the reasons why Wavelength Incorporated is a not-for-profit is so we could get grants and allow ourselves to have that cushion to take more chances and not be at the mercy of the market. And I think that's kind of where the music scene needs to evolve, is a recognition of the, of the need for public funding and support and for it to be sort of spread more equi- equitably across the sector. So the for-profit venues that previously were, might not have been able, you know, eligible to apply for grants now are 
now receiving some of this emergency funding, which is great. And hopefully that may, may lead to some changes in the funding system that would, um, you know, allow a venue like the Garrison, for example, who previously might not have, you know, qualified for any sort of public funding to access it. Cause I think that's more of the sort of in Europe, that's more the norm that, um, venues, uh, are sort of treated like community centers or cultural centers and, um, you can have indie music venues that that, that book rock and electronic and hip hop bands that are that have uh, funding from the government to core to cover their core operations to pay you know their rent is paid their staff is paid and then they can actually focus on making sure the bands get paid <laughs> that right. the artists get paid that the artists get paid as well so um, like I'm a big supporter of that of that type of model. Um, Maybe the live model isn't as important as it used to be. I don't know. You know, like we, no one really knows what what the future is going to hold. I mean, this we've seen this amazing sort of adaptation in the last six months of um, the live music scene going online mm-hmm. with live streaming. It's a brave new world. It's a whole new format, a whole new way of artists getting to connect with their audiences. But I, at the same time, I don't know if ever if anything's ever really going to replace that feeling of being in a room with people, of bodies being close together. But unfortunately, that is the perfect place for a pandemic to spread. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right. So right. the thing, you know, the thing about the live music scene is it's got it's got all these things going against it in terms of surviving a pandemic. You've got loud music, you've got people drinking, and you've got bodies close together so it's going to be very interesting to see how people are going to create it creatively adapt to this because it this it's probably not going away anytime soon all right well uh johnny i I wish we could leave on a more optimistic note but uh you know until we have that vaccine i guess we really just don't know no we don't i mean i i think that i am optimistic in some ways i think that um the club-based model that served us so well in the 80s and 90s and two, early 2000s, it was already sort of maybe it was like the, the cracks are starting to show, like the inequities of that model were starting to show. You could, there was definitely a lot of you know marginalized people and genres that had been shut out of that system. And you know maybe this is like it, like it is in so many ways. The pandemic is presenting an opportunity for us to create a new, maybe more equitable model of live music presentation maybe one that's safer all around, maybe that one, one that's, um, doesn't prioritize unhealthy lifestyles and one that can reach a wider diversity of people. I think that's a better way to go out. Johnny, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Anyway, that's the show. Thanks as always for listening. Thank you to everyone who told us about the places that helped get them through the summer. Jess Collins, Michelon Rodriguez, Ron Kelly, Kendra Robertson Ainsworth, Chris Murray, Megan McDonald, and Gavin Bowerman. If you liked this episode, please tell your patio server, your socially distanced park party, and your four-piece post-ironic pandemic core synthop band. As always, if you subscribe or give us a quick rating on iTunes, you'll be helping us expand our audience. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at track 82. That's all spelled out. 
If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West, now open to all mask-wearing customers. In the meantime, here's to an unseasonably long summer.